Hi, and welcome to Spilling Chai. I'm your host, Anisha Hussain. You may know me as the Bangladeshi-American cable news commentator who debates toxic masculinity with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Or maybe you've read my articles on CNN about toxic white supremacy. While I may be a pro at giving my opinion and analysis on the headlines, something you don't get to hear me do is ask the questions and talk about something other than the news. And that's what I'm all about doing right now, because between coronavirus, a global lockdown, and social isolation, my Persian cats and I need a break. This podcast, Billing Chai, is about conversations. I want to feel inspired, and radio is such a great medium to have really in-depth conversations and to take the time to have them. In this show, I'm going to be talking to brilliant writers, passionate activists, and amazing artists, and I want you to join us. This podcast is also a PSA on behalf of all brown people that in most of the Asia and the Middle East, chai is not a latte. Instead, it's the best kind of tea. And on this podcast, we are all about spilling it. So pour yourself a cup and pull up a seat. Hello, my dear listeners. Welcome to Episode 7 of Spilling Chai. Like so many people that grew up outside of America... American TV shows and movies made up such a big part of my childhood. So this idea about America being all about law and order and justice and the bad guys versus the good guys and legal systems that work was something that was so ingrained in me from what I watched and saw on screen. The message was clear. No one in America is above the law. I really believed that once. Well, all that went to hell with Trump. Can we even count the ways this man has rendered the American system of checks, balances, accountability, and the whole concept of no one being above the law to oblivion? Lucky for us, if there's something our guest today knows and understands, it's how the law works. And she's someone you've definitely seen on your TV screens. I am talking about MSNBC and NBC legal contributor and trial lawyer Katie Fang. Katie was born in Miami, and after graduating from high school, she went on to Yale and then got her law degree from the University of Miami before becoming a prosecutor in the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office. These days, she's not only a partner at Berger Sigmund's Miami office, but a legal contributor for MSNBC and NBC. Hello and welcome to the show, Katie. So after everything that Trump has gotten away with, from not turning in his taxes to the Mueller probe to Ukraine to widespread nepotism to impeachment. Do you think we can still call America a nation of laws? Well, you know, I literally use the lack of the rule of law in a conversation yesterday with somebody who's very involved in the Mueller was very involved in the whole Mueller investigation, etc. I'm not a naive person by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm still very much an optimist that we still are a country of laws mm-hmm. and that we still have them and that there is still some semblance of a judicial system and a process of justice that will be applied to people like the cops involved in the Floyd murder the men that were arrested in the Ahmad Arbery murder. I mean, there are things that are still in principles that still exist because I know that they exist because I teach yeah. them to my daughter, right? I have a yes. five-year-old and my husband and I endeavor to teach her all of those things. But it's very hard to maintain your optimism when we're sitting here today having this conversation. I was a firm believer before the Trump administration in 2016 
that no matter what, there was going to be a checks and balances system that would definitely apply. But now it's hard for me to sit there and look somebody in the face squarely in their eye and say, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. We're going to have something. So I think that one of the biggest defeatist kind of feelings I'm going to have is if the United States Supreme Court comes down on the side of Donald Trump when it comes to the release of his financials, which is traditionally and historically done, which is a level of transparency that is not only necessary for you and me as regular Joe citizens, but should be applicable to the person who holds the highest office in the land. And so I'm going to be really disheartened if I find a ruling that comes on ideological bases from the Supreme Court, but I'm still a believer that they will do the right thing, even with some really, really conservative justices that make up our Supreme Court right now. What was the most important moment or part of the impeachment proceedings for you? It was a negative. It was the absence of something. It was the failure to call witnesses, Witnesses. I think was the biggest deal. Because we have a right of confrontation that is memorialized in a criminal system when you have a criminal case. Mm -hmm. But to some extent, we also have a right to confrontation, even in a civil context, in a civil case, to the extent that the rules of evidence do not allow hearsay to Mm -hmm. come in. They require the presentation of a witness, and they cannot allow the truth of the matter of something being asserted outside of court to be used as evidence in a case. And the fact that we had a trial, not just a hearing, but we had a trial that was televised. And as we know, in the 21st century, it's all over the place. It's all not just you place. have to be in front of a black box anymore, right? That's your TV tube to watch. That we had a trial that was televised all over the world that was supposed to be an example of the American judicial system, although it wasn't a trial trial in the traditional of senses because it was done in a legislative context. Mm-hmm. It was humiliating to have that be a process within which we're trying to hold someone accountable, again, who is in the highest office of the land. And that was how it was depicted. So if you were in Bangladesh or if you were in Korea, where my family is from, and you were watching this and you saw what a circus sideshow event it became because it was just unbelievably skewed in favor of Donald Trump, how could you not sit there and scratch your head and say, this is a democracy? Like my father left Korea to come to the United States for an education and for the American dream. But wouldn't you now say, I don't really know if I want my kids to come to a country where they have the president of the country who's able to completely railroad the system to his favor. I mean, it's a serious question you have to ask yeah. yourself if you want a better life for your children. Trump has done so much to frame corona with a racial bigoted lens and as a, quote, Chinese virus. As an Asian American, how did you feel when you heard Trump say that, quote, Asian Americans are very angry at what China has done to our country and the world? All you have to do is go to my Twitter profile and see the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile. I quote tweeted that tweet from him. And I said, as an Asian American, I am very angry at Donald Trump for what he has done to the United States. For him to co-opt my culture, my race, my ethnicity, to try to politicize a virus that does not know color does not know gender, does not know a boundary is appalling to me. It's disgusting to me because he's the one who has no hesitation to call it the Kung flu, the China virus, the Chinese virus. 
And you know what? And to have, even before the coronavirus became a known pandemic, I was traveling and I went into an airport bathroom and I got some really bad side eye, full on stare down from a couple of people because I just look Asian. Like I literally didn't say anything and I walked into a bathroom and they were wearing masks, ironically. And they looked at me like I was the coronavirus. The coronavirus. Um, yeah. And I think to myself, just like people in the United States that happen to be Muslim or happen to be brown people of color with us as kind of fellow brethren of that type of group, it's like, how comfortable would you be to be painted with a wide swath of just a generalization about your people? and who you are. But Trump has no problem doing that. Trump who thinks that he's comfortably white, that he yes. can do that. And you know what the problem is though, because you put somebody like Bill Barr as the attorney general of the United States, although I like to say he's the attorney general of Trump, right? Because he certainly is not represent, Barr is certainly not representative of the United States and the people that are in it. We don't have a department of justice that is standing tall and saying to Donald Trump, basically, fuck off. You yeah. may be the president of the United States, but there's a reason why we are a separate branch of government and we are supposed to be here to be the safeguard, to be, if our Alamo is going to be defending all people of color because they are people, then that's what our principal foundation is. We don't have that. We don't have real prosecutions of hate crimes right now. We have Barr running around being a lapdog for Donald Trump. And so that is the problem that we have. That is that place where we thought we'd have that last bastion of safety and protection for rights and laws and fundamental principles, and it's being torn down from the inside. Oh. And so that's the scary part about what's happening right now. But that's why, ultimately, the irony of all of this is it emphasizes the importance of a vote. Yes. I think a lot of us have taken for granted for years that our vote is something that we do. That if we could stand in line long enough and deal with the bullshit of standing in line, that we can go and we can vote. And maybe we'll vote, maybe we won't, whatever. I mean, if this is one takeaway that's a positive from this, it should prove to people how important and how valuable their vote is. You lost your father last year on Father's Day. He fought Alzheimer's and was really an embodiment of the American dream in many ways. Talk to me about him. What was he like? We're a couple of weeks away from the anniversary of his passing. And my father came to the United States at the age of 19 with $2.43 in his pocket. He barely spoke English. He had no friends and no family in the United States. And he came here for an education. He received a bachelor's degree in engineering, got a master's degree in engineering, and then eventually got a PhD in engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic. My father, for a brief couple of years, did private industry engineering, but loved teaching so much that he was a professor for decades. And when he finally retired in his 70s, it really kind of became apparent that after a few years of not working anymore, that definitely something was happening in terms of his faculties. And he eventually was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And more importantly, it was coupled with Lewy body dementia. And that was the really challenging thing. I think a lot of people think about Alzheimer's as their very sweet grandmother who doesn't remember things, right? Or their very sweet grandfather who misplaces something and doesn't remember where they put it. But this was my dad. This was not a grandparent. And my brilliant father, who could explain to you 
how a bridge was built or how a building was constructed didn't know what a remote control was anymore and didn't know what a potato was anymore but with the louis body dementia he also got very violent and so to have my father who i was very close to and that i respected so much and adored to literally be a physical threat to the point where we had to put him in a memory care facility was the hardest thing and i respected my mother's decision my mother if my dad was still alive they'd be celebrating their 51st wedding anniversary at the end of this month and i didn't push or pressure my mom i respected her autonomy but she lived and cared with my dad until we put him in a memory care facility i will never forget the date it was february 16 2017 and i just supported her through all of it and then when he eventually got sick and he was only in hospice for a couple of weeks until he passed away on father's day last year i don't have a lot of regrets i mean i miss my dad because he was my dad but i spent a lot of time with him but i think what's happening now is as well that i'm in a sandwich generation of a 5-year-old daughter and i have my mom is 78 and my dad was 87 when he died wow. and i don't think people really understand how important elder care issues are we're yes. hearing a lot about it during coronavirus and yes. i know that culturally like Culture. Asians are very keen on yes. taking care of their elders yes. but we're very americanized here and so we don't necessarily yes. have our elders living with us in our homes etc and it was just really hard yeah. to feel like you're not honoring your parent it's like you can't even have adequate childcare let alone adequate elder care and elder i never care. realized how important that was until i put him in a place where he's supposed to be receiving specialized care it's not just let me help take care of your elderly parent it's let me take care of your parent that has alzheimers which is so challenging and sundowning and all sorts of things that come with it and so the guilt that you go through when you put your parent in a facility like that the guilt you go through actually when your parent passes because you're always going to second guess yourself that i put him in there too early did i not see him enough or whatever oh. i still have that but it's mitigated by the fact that every week i went and saw my dad during the week i'd go and see him and even though he would ask me the same questions and we'd repeat himself i got to be there for my dad but in the end my daughter asked me the morning after my dad died She's like, "Where's Papa Michael?" She called him Papa Michael. And she's like, "Where's Papa Michael?" I said, "Charlotte, I'm like, I've got some bad news, Papa Michael." And by the way, to my daughter's credit, at 4, at the age of 4, she <laughs> would go and see my dad on hospice. Oh. And she was not yes. scared of him. She would sing to him, she would hold his hand, which I thought was just such a gift to have such an old soul and my little girl yes. who could love him so unconditionally. But when he died, I told her, I said, "You know, I've got bad news, Papa Michael went to heaven." And she said to me, he can run now, right? Because my dad was in a wheelchair at the end. Oh. And I said, yeah, she yeah. goes his legs are fixed, right? And I said, yes, his legs are fixed. And we had lost my 14-year-old Schnauzer in October of 2018, named Noodles. So she says, oh. well, Noodles is with him now, and I said, yes. <sighs> and then she said to me, I said, you know, it's sad because he left on Father's Day, which is always an important holiday. She said, but mommy, he gave you one last father's day i thought wow how horrible that i lost my dad yeah. on father's day but she said mommy he gave you one last father's day and it's true he didn't That's pass so away terrible. until 11:20 at night on father's day oh. so i got to spend that whole day with him so it's amazing what comes out of the mouths of children and their perspective which is why it's so important for us to preserve 
what is left of our country for our children. Why we have to not give up hope, why we have to be the optimists, even though people will laugh at us for still believing that there are people out there that believe enough in the idea that fair is fair and right is right. And you and I are people just like the people down the street are and just like the people that are losing their lives are. And that's why we always have to keep that up because that's our job for bringing little people into the world. That's our job. So you are a Miami-based trial lawyer and an MSNBC legal contributor. You were with Fox News before that. How does one become an attorney with a side gig being on TV? What is your advice to young women, especially young women of color, who look at you and say, wow, I want to be Katie Fang when I grow up? I would shake them and say, have some sense, young woman. You don't want to be me. (laughs) Um, But no, listen, if I could cherry pick from the good and teach people what I learned, you know, I went to law school to be a lawyer and I became a prosecutor straight out of law school. And I was a prosecutor for almost half my career thus far. And I studied hard and I worked hard. And it's a very traditional work ethic that applied in everything that I do, but specifically when it came to my job. I was such a good trial lawyer prosecutor that I was asked to do a local CBS affiliate coverage of the Michael Jackson second pedophilia trial that he had back in 2005. Mm. And I did like a counterpoint with a local criminal defense attorney every morning in advance of the Michael Jackson trial and to kind of break down what had happened in the trial the day before. And that morphed into coverage of other cases at the time, like the Robert Blake murder trial that was happening out in California, etc. And then I had an opportunity to become a full-time reporter, a general assignment reporter for the CBS affiliate here in Miami, but I turned them down because I really wanted to cover the court beat. I didn't want to cover cat up in a tree at 4 a.m. in the morning. So when that couldn't happen, I refocused and stayed being a lawyer, which is great because having been a lawyer for more than 20 years, I have the street credibility to talk about cases, not just criminal, but civil and to talk about the law because I also still have an active full-time practice where I have clients and I go to trial and I go to court. And I think that that makes a difference materially when you want to do a job like be a legal analyst or a legal contributor, because you have to be able to talk from the perspective of not only substance, but from life experience. And the other thing I did was a lot of the people I worked with locally went national. And that was how I ended up on Fox News. A very good friend of mine who used to work here in Miami went and became the executive producer for Greta Van Susteren's show at the time on the record with Greta Van Susteren. And it was a primetime slot at 7 p.m. Monday through Friday. And I got a random call a few years ago asking if I want to do a legal panel. I said, sure, why not for fun? And I did it. And then I got a call the next day saying Greta would love to have you come back. And it became an everyday gig that I was doing for Fox News. Now, conveniently, Greta left in September of 2016 and actually went to MSNBC. I stayed at Fox News, but then Trump won in November. And then I came to NBC in January of 2017. I always say that God was looking out for me because there's no way I could have stayed at Fox during this administration. (laughs) I know. So so I left that network to come to MSNBC, NBC in January of 2017, where I've been ever since. And the cool thing has been that it was a transition to go from Fox to MSNBC, but I always kept in touch with people over the years. Mm -hmm, And I think that 
that was the best thing is to always maintain relationships because you remain top of mind for people. You remain relevant. And the other advice I give is I used to be embarrassed when I was younger that I was Korean because I was born in the United States. I was born in New York, but then I lived in Tuscaloosa, Alabama until age eight when I moved to Miami. Mm -hmm. And I always struggled with the fact that I looked so different from everybody Mm -hmm. that I never wanted to speak Korean at home. I didn't want to eat Korean food, etc. And I used to be embarrassed about my differences. And yet now, as you know, it's a great thing to be a woman of color because you are, you know, I'm a Korean woman that goes on national television to talk about national issues. And hopefully there's a little girl or a little boy out there who thinks that, wow, if she can do it, I can do it. And that's always the message, right? It's like, see me and you'll be hopefully convinced that you could do it. And so that's what I think is really important to not shy away from what makes you different, that that's actually a positive and to use it to your advantage. And if people underestimate you, which they do all the time in my job, even though I'm pretty well known with what I do, some people will say, oh, she just looks like a little girl, little female lawyer. She's the paralegal. She's the court reporter. She's the judicial assistant. She's the clerk, whatever. Let them underestimate you. Yes. Because then when you kick their ass, then you show them exactly what they underestimated. As I record this episode, my dear listeners, America is on fire, literally burning over police brutality, a pandemic that has paralyzed the country, and ultimately about the killing of black lives. Looking out on the streets, watching the news, I can't believe this is the same country that used to embody law and order for me. Stay safe out there, my dear listeners. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai.